Hello, my name is Michelle Yana-Chan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent, Toomey, and Ultimate Library. I'm joined by the writer Preeti Taneja, whose book Aftermath has just been published. It's a work of fragmented nonfiction of life after the terrorist attack at Fishmongers Hall in London in 2019. Two people were killed, Saskia Jones and Jack Marrett. Preeti knew Jack. She also knew the perpetrator, Osman Khan. She taught him creative writing in a high-security prison under an education programme called Learning Together, run by the Institute of Criminology at Cambridge University. Jack, who Usman killed, was the programme coordinator. Minutes after the attack, Usman himself was shot and killed by police on London Bridge. Aftermath follows Preeti's book, We That Are Young, which won the 2018 Desmond Elliott Prize for Debut Novelists. The story set in contemporary India holds parallels with Shakespeare's King Lear, it's a dynamic and devastating story of greed and corruption. Preeti, welcome. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Aftermath opens, Preeti, with your efforts to write about November 29th, 2019, and the fallout of that day. Your struggle is, is very apparent in those early pages to express the trauma and the pain and the grief. And you write, language fails me. How did that feel as a writer for language to fail you? Well, a lot of my writing puts pressure on language to reveal its many meanings. And when I write language fails me, it was both to do with the fact that this event rendered me speechless in a really profound way because it was so shocking to be in that kind of proximity to violence, to grieve in lots of complex ways, which our culture doesn't have space for. And so language fails on another level, which is that we don't have words to talk about these extreme harms and put them in our context, our linguistic context, because we focus so much on who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, and those and those binaries. Um, this case, which was extremely specific and highly unusual, but also at the same time in, entirely preventable, really put pressure for me on what we're allowed to say, what we can't say, and what we don't have words for, as well as the trauma this very silencing trauma um, of the shock and grief of knowing someone who killed someone I also knew. You slip from first into second and third person at times. I, I quote, trauma cannot be written or survived in the first person singular. What, what did that shift in position offer you? I think, you know, collectivity and collective grief and acknowledging the community of grief of grief is important. And 
Um, I, I, didn't, I wasn't, you know, the core of this event in many ways. I was not a family member of Jack or Saskia or even Isman. Um, he did have a family. Um, he does, you know, he was a son and brother. Um, and, and so we, so those of us who were on the periphery of that kind of core, we were not their close friends, um, intimate partners and so on. And yet there was a, there is a collectivity of how we were grieving because the nation was caught up in this thing as well. The town of Cambridge was caught up, the city of Cambridge was caught up in it. These tiny other pockets of, you know, the college community where Jack was, um, where Jack taught or the institution or um, the place where he worked, the punter pub in Cambridge, um, all of these smaller communities and everybody was affected. And so the, so the shift from the first person acknowledges that um, into, um, that wider circle and all of those circles within circles. And it's important, I think, to say when you're traumatized by something or when you're grieving for something that that is valid on its own terms, even as you recognize that everybody is feeling it differently and working through their own relationship to it too. Because I, I mean, I, didn't, I don't want to draw a kind of special ring around myself with this story because it is part of a much larger story, but I have quite a strange and unique positionality in it too. Your book's divided into three sections, radical doubt, radicalizing thought, radical hope. And I quote here from the first section, something has happened. I no longer believe in the potential of words to resist, to heal or to sing the horizon. This is the heart of the country of radical doubt. The atrocity called home. Um, the word atrocity you've hyphenated, atro hyphen city, and it does become a kind of place in your book. But I emphasize it because you emphasize and re-emphasize your kind of loss of faith in, in language for a period, because of course you are writing and you've written a book. So contradictorily, I guess, to um, this idea that it's failed you because it, it hasn't perhaps. Yeah, I, I felt that there was, there had to be a way through this thing. And the only way I know how to make sense of anything is to write um, and to write it down and to work with structure, to work with form, to work at the sentence level, to break down words um, and get the, and get the aesthetics of what I'm doing as close to the feeling of what I want to say as possible. Um, and for this, that felt like the right decision to make. Um, and so I was coming back to the ability to, to put things on paper because it was really um, teaching fiction writing and the place of what we want to believe. So the fictions of terror, the fictions of saviorism um, in this case, which I think kind of clashed together and made an event happen. Looking further back, Preeti, you cite 9-11 as a moment when you knew everything would change for you. How how did that feel at that moment, knowing that and all, and also being right about it? I think um, you know when I look back, I was twenty one on in nine eleven, and well maybe I was twenty two, um, and I think you know for the first time it was 
obvious where the lines were going to be drawn. And my my undergraduate, so remember, I had just left the university. My undergraduate degree is in theology. So I was very alive to the ways in which these narratives of kind of clash of civilizations and the othering of Islam um, had, had, were historically embedded in culture way back towards, you know, we're talking crusades. So um, when that moment happened, and being a political person who was extremely aware of the way that law and legislation impinges on bodies and different kinds of bodies, I suddenly just thought, you know, everyone who looks like a brown person in this country is going to have to reckon with their identity and be confronted with suspicion now. That is always, that is going to happen. And So perhaps it was a kind of um, doom-laden view <laughs> on September 12th, 20, 2001. There was no fear in the air. And yet I remember that time as well in London as also a time when people would just talk to each other randomly, just as in any big communal shock, tragic, tragic event, people in London on the on the underground were suddenly talking to each other because everyone wanted to make everyone else feel like they were not alone. Um, this thing had happened in America, obviously, but there was a sense that, you know, London might be next. Um, and people were reaching out to each other. So there was also this like undercurrent of, of mutualness and community building around that time too. Um, you asked me what Sitfield had been right about that. Hundreds and thousands of people were right about it. And yet we were, we were not able to stop it in impinging on our, all of our lives in uh, extremely damaging and detrimental forms of surveillance culture that have risen since then. Um, the prevent strategy, which has just traumatized whole swathes of Muslim communities in this country, working class communities in particular, and children. Um, it doesn't feel good. It feels feels like it wasn't inevitable and yet at the same time there it was. When we tick the box on the form British Asian or, or if it's more expounded first generation immigrant daughter of South Asian heritage or whatever it might be the categories box us of course but do the forms nevertheless capture something of, of who we are? Well, I think racial categorization is really dangerous, you know, because we because we don't think of it as categories that are created. We believe that's who we are, and of course they are created, and they have their roots in in a colonization of us into lesser humans than white people, and it comes from a you know a, a, a tendency to want to you know measure skulls. It's it's horrifying when you break it down. And the, 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 the forms you're talking about, the citizenship form or whatever, those are ways, I mean, just that kind of data is collected for lots of different reasons, partly to do with, you know, mapping socioeconomic outcomes for different communities. And, and the hope that I would hope that that, the, that data is then used to raise up, you know, the people who are being most left behind um, and to improve living conditions and the quality of life. But the way that we see our government behaving, we know that isn't true. 
So what is the data for and what's actually doing? I don't know. Does it capture something? Yes, it captures the state's need to completely understand its own power, in my opinion. But can the feeling of being an outsider be useful, especially as a writer, kind of bestowing you with, with a writer's lens? Yeah, I mean, I think all writers feel themselves to be somewhat, you know, among them, but not of them, because something's going on in our minds all the time that's nothing to do with the world that we're actually walking in on everything to do with it at the same time because we might be having conversations, but at the same time we're processing every bit of information in the room, or we might be driving the car. I don't know, the imaginative life feels very, very alive to me. Um, so I think from that point of view, being an outsider is really generative. Um, and I don't think, I think people find themselves to be outsiders for lots of different reasons, not just race, which is a bit, or skin color, let's call it skin color, which is a very visible difference. Um, we can always other ourselves, for better or worse. And it is generative, I mean, absolutely. But it doesn't make life easier, that's the thing. Like you could have a, a certain perspective um, because you feel like you're an outsider, but if in some profound way you're an insider, like that means the trajectory that you have is going to be different to someone who structurally an outsider. So there's a difference between the way you feel about yourself and the way the state understands you, and the culture understands you. Um, Preeti, your, your family has experienced borders very personally. I think your grandparents on both sides are from Pakistan and fled to India. And Is that wrong? No, that's not wrong, but it wasn't Pakistan then. No, correct. What became yeah. Pakistan? Basically, the way I kind of describe it is they were part of the great migration that took place in partition, and they left what became what was became, becoming Pakistan and, and yes. went to the Indian side, you know. Your maternal grandmother, I think, was actually pregnant with your mother at the time. Um, That's right. So you have a glossary at the back of your book, and you define the term for citizens of nowhere, forward slash Commonwealth citizens, as this. My grandmother's life forfeit in partition, my mother in her womb. I know the state works to undermine communities' trust in each other and lead us in circles to a condition of permanent fear and harm, and from there to radicalization. Do you, do you feel like a citizen of nowhere? Um. Yeah, I suppose so in some really important way, which I find liberating. I feel like language is my home and a set of ways of thinking about borderlessness is where I feel most I can do my work. And having a passport, which is British, has obviously benefited the production of my work in some very, very important ways. I can get through certain borders more easily than other people. I can access certain spaces more easily than other people because I am a British citizen. Um, I can say certain things about issues I care about from Hindu fascism to criticizing the Indian state um, on a more um, 
on the level of fiction or you know the government etc and that is a freedom that i have because of my boarded citizenship but in myself i yeah i feel like i'm a citizen i really powerfully i feel like i'm a citizen of nowhere and that's and that's an extremely positive thing because it also is the flip side of being a citizen of the world as well as touching on partition in, in both of your books, you write about the disputed territory of Kashmir, which is part controlled by India, part Pakistan. And in Aftermath, you write, like a journal entry, this. You unfold a map in your mind and see the tear here perforation of the line of control between India and Pakistan. When you write about this, Preeti, this very personal issue, are you documenting and, and telling the story? Or are you wanting to to draw attention to it? Or is it also, is there something else such as, does it help you in some way to write about something like that, something as painful as that? It's profoundly important to me that the origin stories of the minorities, the South Asian minorities, in my case, of this country, do not get lost or curated out of culture through willful policy making and just sheer desire to pretend that this terrible division of kingdom, division of land did not happen. Because over and over, I have seen in the 20 years I've been an educator, young people coming into the classroom with no idea how to make sense of the fact their home lives are completely different to their school lives. And it's almost as if their origins don't matter and they don't exist until they're documented by the state in some particular way. And I find that an undignified way to be a civilization, to call ourselves civilized. It robs young people of dignity from such a young age because their own mothers are being negated, their own languages, their grandparents, their home, their home origins that come to them through all sorts of ways which we can't really trace or map nor should we. But school is our first encounter with authority and values of a community beyond home and family. And unless we do the work to pull, put those stories back into culture, how on earth will we ever grow up a community of people who understand why their society is is the way it is. Why is it that certain people from certain backgrounds, certain linguistic and cultural backgrounds are delivering your fried chicken and a bicycle or run, running your Uber or working as a barista or cleaning or portering or anything like that doesn't make sense until you understand its origins. Um, so in my work, what I'm always going to do is insert those stories because they matter to the story that I'm telling and because they fulfill fill a gap in our national story, which we cannot afford to keep on pretending that we can maintain. So in your debut novel, We That Are Young, you portray a modern India and this extreme disparity in wealth of the rich and the poor, and that there are so many inflections of, of boundaries in that, whether the chauffeur-driven car, with the window rolling up and down, and the gaze in and out. And 
it's this rub of wealth in such close proximity to poverty. And I wanted to ask if if that's a byproduct for you. Are you just trying to kind of get a good yarn down? Or are you t are you telling the world? I mean, is it polemical? Yeah, I'm a political writer. There's, you know, there's no other way to say to cut that one. And I think it's something to be proud of. And it's I think it's disingenuous to say my work is not political. Um, whoever you are, uh, I find Sally Rooney's work profoundly political. It's there in the choices you make as an author. Not, not. I'm just pick, picking names out of the hat that like feel very different to where I position my work. But or I don't know anybody. But you, can't, you can't pretend that what you're doing is not political, because it comes from a, it comes from a culture. It comes from your reading culture. It comes from how you understand the world to be, and that's completely informed by. Um, state curation over generations. How can it not be? In Aftermath, you write about going on a book tour in the US for We That Are Young and how you perceived the long history of anti-Black racism there. And I quote, the challenge so much more urgent and prominent than in England. It struck me again that my country still has so much to admit. How far along is England? your country, as you put it, in that process. We're going backwards. And when I say admit, I'm talking about the process of um, admitting to ourselves these histories, but also admitting refugees um, and immigrants to our borders, through the borders, um, and also admitting the humanity of those people. Um, you know, I think a lot of this is informed by Islamophobia, which is just so prevalent in our culture. People don't want to hear this and they don't want to, you know, acknowledge it because it sort of, I don't know why, but it sort of sparks this defensive outrage. Um, you know, one can back this up with numbers if you are more a fact-based fact -based person. Or you can, you can just see, you can just divide up, you know, where these policies that the state's putting in place to keep people out. Who's taking the brunt of those worst of all? Um, where are the wars being fought that are not being mourned? Whose lives do we consider grievable and whose do we consider collateral to our own? You know, those are the big questions that I think I'm wrestling with in that this event in London Bridge kind of threw up for me and I had to think through it in the worst way. Like most of the time one can think through this in a compassionate way and think, you know, about bombs dropping on Iraqis in Iraq or whatever which is awful and something I've worked on in my own advocacy work. But it's very rare we have to do that work when a violent attack happens that takes lives that are in proximity to ours. And yet that's what I had to do. At one point in Aftermath, you refer to the author Sanjeev Sahota and his novel, Ours of the Streets. And I quote, uh -huh. Sahota, who was born in Britain with Indian origins, writes the horrific future, the working class bind, the psychological split, manageable up to a point of crisis, the awakening to Western militaristic damage, the questions of home forever unaddressed. So last line that stuck with me, Preeti, the questions of home forever unaddressed. I wondered how important the question of home is to you. It's funny, you know, no one's ever asked me that. Um, and it's one of those questions that you could take anywhere, any place you want to, really. 
ironically. <laughs> I think um, home is quite a hard one thing for me. And if I was to locate where my home is, like I said, on a personal level, it's in language. It's with a certain group of people, with a certain person. Um, doesn't necessarily have walls. Doesn't have an external landscape, even though I am more comfortable in my home country of England than I probably am in other places where I didn't grow up or have made my life. But I feel like it's very important for me to stay rooted in who I am on my own terms and to always try to look for the spaces and places in the physical world which promote and support that rather than try to um, make home fit someone else's idea of what that should look like. You know, we all need a place to rest. No one I have ever met in a prison thinks of it as home. You write uh, this quote from Sophocles and Antigone. In prison, she hears the lament of refrain. This is the quote, I have been a stranger here in my own land all my life. Is that a lament or is that just a fact? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's like the realization of outsiderness that one carries within oneself. And then when you kind of awaken to the idea that it's also how everyone else positions you as well, then you realize it isn't just generated from yourself as if you were kind of paranoid outside and other, but it's been pinched upon you. And I love that. I love that little quote. I've been a stranger in my own land all my life. And the translation is so beautiful. It's got that poignancy of lament, and anguish. And it's like ang anguish, I think, is the central emotion of a lot of my work. Um, people mix it up with anger a lot but anguish is an emotion that perhaps is out of fashion in popular discourse or culture but i think if we could recognize it that that's a lot of the time how we feel about what we see going on around us and our own inability to do more than maybe vote for change or go go and protest and those kinds of freedoms being eroded and shut down as well well, another theme, um, other than anguish, I feel like I located was trust, a big part of the work, uh, almost yeah. really the, the loss of, of faith and trust, which you call trust that is a necessary fiction we rest our contingent lives on. Is that eroding or, or does the human spirit a desire to, to survive I mean trust always wins over doubt and fear. Yeah, I think it does, you know. I mean, there's so much. Um, there's so many moments in our lives where we trust what we see, we trust what we smell, we trust what we've been conditioned to, and we walk into situations where we all really ought to know better, but we don't because we are not used to trusting our own bodies and our own fight or flight responses or whatever. Oh, it will be fine because... The Prime Minister says so. Oh, it will be fine because the teacher thinks that's what we should do or whatever. I had a situation 
recently where I trusted a group of people who to talk about aftermath. Um, you know, they had a bunch of conditions for me to keep me safe because um, of the post-traumatic stress of, of, um, of the whole event and what happened, which I've written about in the book. Um, and everything about it was a completely unsafe situation. So instead of carrying on with that, because I have had to learn to trust my own instincts, I, I pulled my contribution to their program <laughs> rather than have it go out and me feel awful about it, even if it had been fine, I can go ahead maybe that's why your your third section is is referring to hope because it does it does feel um that that you you end with a, a sense of hope in this book which could could have gone the other way of course yeah so fundamentally i guess i am a hopeful person because i believe in um i've seen myself how people take their time to respond, um, take their time to come back from things. Um, the group of students that I taught um, from Cambridge University who were in prison with me with Jack the day before he died, they're all incredible and they give me hope all the time because they've had to live through that event and losing their final year of university to the pandemic and now a terrible situation, Brexit, reality and trying to make their way in the world, which has changed so much. And we don't even know what the impact of that is yet. And yet they're, they're doing their work and they're doing it together. They're doing mutual aid. They're still involved in social justice. Still, some of them are still working in criminal justice. And I think that's an incredible, um, incredibly positive thing. Um, they haven't lost their will to be involved. Pretty extraordinary. Pretty Tanasia, thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you, Michelle. My thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent, Toomey and Ultimate Library. Goodbye.